This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Can businesses generate success other than profit? In this talk from Ashoka, 2006 Nobel Peace Prize winner Muhammad Yunus shares his strategies for building connections between the business and social sectors. He explains his model of what he calls non-loss businesses, as opposed to profit-maximizing or not-for-profit organizations. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you a presentation from Ashoka's Social Entrepreneurship Series. In this series, you will meet six eminent global social entrepreneurs who are the founding members of Ashoka's Global Academy as they share their insights, strategies, and vision for change. Recognizing the power of individual innovation and social change, Bill Drayton founded Ashoka in 1981. Ashoka identifies and invests in extraordinary individuals with unprecedented ideas for change in their communities, supporting them, their ideas, and institutions through all phases of their careers. For more information or to get involved, visit www.ashoka.org. If you like this conversation, please share it with a friend. We've made it easy for you to spread important ideas for social and environmental change. Look for the new Share with a Friend feature on our website. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from Ashoka's Social Entrepreneurship Series. Muhammad Yunus created Grameen Bank, a bank tailored for poor people in response to crushing poverty in his newly created country of Bangladesh. Poverty is not caused by the poor people. Poverty is caused by the system we built. Poverty is caused by the policies that we pursue. Grameen Bank has made a significant contribution to reducing poverty in Bangladesh. Since Grameen's creation in the 1970s, life expectancy has risen more than 20 years. The fertility rate has been cut in half. It is estimated that each year, 200,000 Grameen members and their families escape poverty. The question is, where do we end up? 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. We did something wrong and the poverty is created. So let's do something right so that poverty disappears. Dr. Yunus traces the growth of microfinance into a worldwide movement. He shares his vision for using it to meet the Millennium Development Goals and to create a poverty-free world. He describes what it will take from all of us to enable microfinance to reach its global potential. Uh, to me, poor people are like a bonsai. Like the bonsai tree, little tree, uh, you pick the uh, seed of the tallest tree in the forest and then take the best seed out of that and plant it in a flower pot. You got a tiny little tree and call it a bonsai. Nothing wrong with the seed, we got the best seed possible. Nothing wrong with the tree because we picked the tallest tree in the forest. But actually it grows this far. Why? 
because we put them into a flower pot, the base. Society is the base. And society is so stingy, it doesn't give them this, the poor people space to grow. So I said, change the base. If you change the base, anybody will be as tall as anybody else. My belief is poverty is not caused by the poor people. Poverty is caused by the system we built. Poverty is caused by the policies that we pursue. So if this is my conclusion, I have to prove that this is true. So I built Grameen Bank as an institution, a bank, but a different kind of bank. You say, there are banks, why did you create another one? I said, this kind of bank doesn't exist. That bank created poverty. These banks get them out of poverty. We assume that some people will always remain poor. I'm always asked in Bangladesh, you talk about having a poverty-free world, are you crazy? Even the richest country in the world, United States, they have poor people there. I said, look, no matter how rich you get in the present system, you'll have poor people. So I'm trying to change that system. In that system, there will be no poor people because people are as capable as anybody else. In a world where, uh, which goes around with money, you cannot get a dollar without a dollar in your hand. To catch a dollar, you need a dollar. In the poor people, nobody gives the first dollar to catch the next dollar. The starting point is missing. If you are born in a rich family, you already have lots of dollars to catch money more in your lifetime. And not only that, if you have a lot of dollars already, any bank will give you a lot more dollars to make it more, and you get more. So if you are at the, on the ground level, you don't catch anything. So you become at uh, service of everybody else. You offer your service, you earn your wage, earn to feed yourself, and that's it. You are not in the money-making world at all. In most of the third world countries, even that job, that's not available either. So they are forced out in the open to go fend for themselves, sell things, buy things, uh, make money, informal sector as they call it, but they don't have the money. So they go to the moneylenders. They borrow in the morning, pay back in the evening, pay 20% a day. That's the standard procedure in the world. Nobody notices that. Nobody wants to notice that. Everywhere, even the USA, the moneylenders are there. Because no banking business, the formal business went in, banks defended themselves by saying that uh, poor people are not creditworthy, that's why I'm not, we are not going there. So today we have shown that they are creditworthy. So what is the excuse of not going and lending money? I call credit as a human right, and I've been insisting that this should be formally adopted as a human right. If you list all the human rights that has already been recognized, right to food, right to shelter, right to health, right to education, how do you get those rights established? Is the government coming in a silver platter, giving it to you, here's your food? Here is a shelter, here is your education. I don't think any government exists which can do that for every citizen. Government responsibility is to enable the person so that they can establish their own rights. And that becomes possible, and then creating that environment becomes simpler if we make the credit available. And if you ask me to uh, kind of uh, put them in order of priority, all those rights, I'll put right to credit as a number one, right? Because that's where it all starts. If you can bring income, credit means creating self-employment right away. 
And if you can create instantaneous self-employment, if you can start in earning income, then other things, achieving other things becomes easier. Right to food, right to shelter, right to health, makes sense. It's very important that as you earn, you put a savings away. Savings is for something for future. It's a long-term asset-building process. Do you have the capacity to cope with emergencies? Emergencies could be flood, general emergency. It could be a personal emergency, somebody's sickness. And then you are building it up for future, like a, a pension fund. At old age, who is going to take care of it? You don't worry because you are building up your future. Traditionally, you think your son will take care of you, your daughter will take care of you, your relatives will take care of you. When day comes, maybe they all abandon you because they are so poor themselves, they cannot help you. So that is available to other people, privileged people, but it's not available to the poor people. In many countries, women cannot go and work. Even men can go become agricultural labor. Women, by tradition, by culture, are not uh, capable of doing that. Uh, so they stay home, become dependent on men. When we began, we wanted to make sure half the borrowers of Grameen Bank are women. Uh, not even 1% of the borrowers of the conventional banks in Bangladesh happen to be women. So there must be something wrong in the system which uh, kind of ignores half the population. And then we saw money going to the family through women brought so much more benefit to the family compared to the benefits coming to the family where money went to the, through men. Women were very cautious with their money. They wanted to get the best mileage out of that money. If women is making money, the children became immediate beneficiary. They went to school, they are better fed, they are better clothed. And they look for women, look for uh, long-term issues, trying to get out of poverty much faster than a man does. So looking at many of these issues, we changed our policy of 50-50. We concentrated on women, we focused on women. And today, with uh, 4 million borrowers in Grameen Bank, 96% are women. Grameen Bank has been studied a lot. I mean, uh, lots of uh, research institutions, universities, donor agencies. World Bank study tells that 5% uh, of Grameen borrowers get out of poverty every year. Uh, and also, if you look at other studies, child mortality has declined by 37% in Grameen families. Nearly 100% of the Grameen children are in school. We, uh, we measure our poverty progress, how you move out of poverty, by uh, bringing 10 uh, points in a checklist. If you have satisfied uh, all those 10 points, you are out of poverty. Uh, one is housing, for example. It's uh, whether you have a solid roof on, over your head and you have enough space inside of your home and, uh, so that you can live in the family without worrying about winter and uh, ra particularly rain in Bangladesh, is a monsoon country. So this is one. Uh, and whether you, all your children are in school and staying in a school in a steady way. So that's another one. Uh, whether you have enough savings uh, deposits in the bank, so that if you have a bank account, at least you know if you need money for emergency or a special reason, you have to, uh, you can fall back on that money. And minimum balance would be 5,000 taka. So that's another point. Whether you have a sanitary latrine, whether you have access to drinking water, pure drinking water. And if out of 10, 9 have been done, 1 is missing, we still do not consider you uh, have crossed the poverty line. And in that uh, estimation, 56% of the Grameen borrowers have moved out of poverty, which is uh, quite a task.
Uh, as we are running Grameen Bank, our issue always is poverty, always the children in those families and their food and so on. And agriculture was in the system right from the beginning. And we saw the opportunity of lying all the uh, non-functioning deep tubes lying all over the country. So we thought, why don't we just take it from the government? So we started an irrigation project within Grameen Bank. And gradually we put it a formal shape, call it Grameen Agricultural Foundation. It became an independent company. And similarly for fisheries, government wanted to give us lots of uh, ponds. They couldn't run because uh, their officials uh, are very incapable of doing that kind of thing. So we took it over and we created the Fisheries Foundation out of that and still running as a Fisheries Foundation. And other companies like Grameen Energy, which is a solar energy company, selling uh, uh, solar panels all over the country. So in, in general, we have more than two dozen such companies that we have created along the way. Uh, now we are getting ready for healthcare. The healthcare is so important, so vital. And the service, healthcare service is so poor in the country. So we thought we must get in to try to build something which can reach out to the poorest. Even today, uh, the children born in Bangladesh is born in the, in, at home. As a result, um, Bangladesh is one of the top uh, in uh, child mortality and one of the top in the maternal mortality. And the Millennium Development Goal is to cut it down uh, by 2015. Always, whatever company that we create with the name Grameen, means it is for the poor. Grameen Phone is a big company uh, and sells mobile phone service in the country. How is it that you benefit from that for the poor people? Either they benefit directly from that company or they will be owning that company. Uh, like Grameen Bank is owned by the poor people. It's uh, owned by the borrowers. Uh, similarly, Grameen Phone, when it goes to the share market, the, those shares will go to the poor people. We'll make sure that the, the company is owned in large part owned by the poor people. Uh, so this is the way we see the scenario. Everything we have done, we see some reason that it will go into the benefiting the poor people. Grameen Bank became um, a piece of curiosity for people because we are saying things which nobody believed it could be done, lending money to poor people and getting it back. Uh, near 100% return of the money, uh, particularly in third world countries and particularly in Bangladesh where the tradition of uh, agricultural banks giving loans, cooperative uh, institutions giving loans, never coming back. That's the tradition. So they wanted to study, they wanted to come and find out how to do it. So the more and more of these people who wanted to do themselves, they became uh, uh, constant visitors trying to find out how to get things done. So we thought instead of uh, doing it piecemeal, why don't we set up an organization who will specialize in this, helping other people to uh, replicate Grameen Bank. So we set up a, uh, an organization called Grameen Trust. So Grameen Trust's job is to uh, provide all the technical assistance, uh, provide training, uh, provide uh, funding if possible. And uh, Peter Goldmark, just newly elected uh, president of uh, uh, Rockefeller Foundation, provided the first chunk of money to come to Grameen Trust to start the uh, funding of the po potential replicators. Um, many of the very important microcredit programs around the world today actually started with Grameen Trust support uh, with that kind of money, giving 
seed money and then uh, starting moving from that uh, stage to the next stage and so on. Today more than 100 countries around the world have grameen programs of one kind or another uh, running there. So the idea has spread globally. So this became a very standard procedure each year the people will apply, they will send letters without knowing that such thing exists and we say why don't you come and join uh, this Grameen Dialogue. And the newsletter that we also called the Grameen Dialogue became the instrument for keeping in touch with each other and uh, discussing the issues at hand, uh, policy issues, uh, technical issues. So both Grameen Dialogue as a newsletter and Grameen Dialogue as a workshop method or uh, exposure uh, uh, method uh, has been very, very important in, uh, uh, in uh, strengthening the movement of microcredit. I was in uh, Beijing conference because of our experience by 1995. And people responded very well during the uh, Beijing conference. We told our story how microcredit works so much good uh, in a more efficient way, bringing women into the um, income stream. And then leading to many other issues besides earning money and political issues and the family status of the children, girl children, and so on, and improving the health of the children because mother is earning money and that helps the children better and education of the children. And I must say that uh, people paid uh, a lot of attention to these issues. It brought the whole world to discuss and understand and review the policies, uh, global policies, national policies towards women and gender issues. The decisions taken in Beijing conference still revibrates all over the world. We organized a microcredit summit in 1997, two years after Beijing, uh, because we felt that uh, microcredit is so good, but not too many people are aware of it and not too many people are getting involved and making it uh, available to everybody. Uh, we have demonstrated beyond anybody's doubt that it works in helping people to get out of poverty, number one, uh, and it's sustainable, and it can work in all kinds of cultural and economic situations. But still people are not giving as much attention we hope they would. So we thought we'll bring the world together. It's a whole issue of changing the mindset of the financial institutions, changing the mindsets of the donors, changing the minds of the government policymakers. So there we presented uh, our case and tried to get their support. And together we arrived at a uh, goal to reach 100 million poorest families uh, with microcredit, preferably to the women in those families, by 2005. And we followed it up year by year, month by month, what we are doing, how far we are doing, and we did a good progress. Uh, we will be very close to 100 million, if not exactly 100 million. So today, we are just around 100 million. Despite all the difficulties, all the skepticism, all the wrong policies, imagine if you had the right policies, imagine if you had all the support system installed, how far we could have gone. And now, we are discussing the Millennium Development Goal of 2015, reducing the number of poor people by half by 2015. No matter how you look at it, sooner or later you'll have to come to the financing of this business. So microcredit will again be an important issue to be discussed to make sure poor people have access to financial services. If we do not apply microcredit to reach the uh, Millennium Development Goal, 
uh, you may reach Millennium Development Goal, but not by 2015. It will be a very slow process because without money, people will always find difficulty to pull themselves out of poverty. What else can you give to help poor people get out of poverty? Health, education, and so on. And growth of the economy. Growth of the economy doesn't immediately translate into getting poor people out. If we can bring the microcredit in the hands of the poor people, then they can take advantage of the growth. Growth, if you imagine uh, growth as a flood, new flood, filling up all the canals and everything. But if the poor people don't have the boat, they will be drowned. The growth may drown them rather than make them float. So you need a boat for the poor people so that they can take advantage in the water in the canal and move in the economic uh, destination wherever they want to go. So that's where the role of the microcredit is. At the conceptual level, what did we do wrong in our framework? We must have done something wrong in the framework which led to all these conditions. One thing I have been emphasizing again and again, for example, in, in the issue of capitalism, there are things that, uh, seeds that we have put in which created the conditions uh, of poverty right now. Uh, and this is no fault of capitalism itself. Uh, I think the whole thing began by the narrow interpretation of capitalism. Uh, for example, when we talk about businesses, we always imply, we always interpret businesses are the institutions who are designed to make money, and their only objective is to make money. So people uh, took it very seriously. So they are in the businesses, they want to maximize their profit in a wholehearted way, a very concentrated way. We built uh, supporting institutions to make it easy for them to get to the maximization of profit. In the way, we discarded all our social objectives of living in this planet. There, I think, we made the big mistake. Businesses could be two kinds, at least. Businesses to make money, maximization of profit, and other kinds of business, business to do good to people. And that could be as uh, dynamic a, a business as uh, anything else you can see in the market. And uh, business to do good to people are the ones who are not running to make money, but they are run as a business, cover their cost. It's a, it's a kind of no-loss business. Two kinds of entrepreneurs can run pharmaceutical companies. One kind of entrepreneur will be running their business as best they can, as efficiently as they can, as productively as they can, to make money. And there could be another kind of entrepreneur, which I may call social business entrepreneur, but doesn't want to make money by selling medicine. He wants to bring medicine to the people so that they can cure themselves of diseases or prevent diseases uh, before it happens, at the same time covering the cost. So that it's not a charity organization, it's a business organization. If we can bring in social business entrepreneurs in every single business, uh, the kind of uh, poverty that we are talking about, uh, kind of uh, problems we see in the market uh, would gradually disappear because the social business entrepreneurs will try to address it. Wherever the problem arises, they will get in. Governments have to play the most important role. Uh, other parties like uh, international finance organizations or donors can initiate, can do a very important job in opening up the uh, path. But the real path making has to be done by the government. Uh, government, first of all, should not get involved in delivering microcredit by themselves. That, I think, would be absolutely wrong policy. 
it should be open for uh, private interventions and uh, private investors or uh, uh, social business entrepreneurs. Government's intervention would be creating a favorable environment, a supportive environment. Under the existing laws everywhere in the world, NGOs or uh, private organizations are not allowed to give loans. If you give loans, you have to get a license. And all countries prohibit taking deposits from somebody unless you're a bank. Uh, as an NGO, you violate the law. In Bangladesh, uh, regulatory bodies made a compromise, allowed the NGOs to take deposits from the borrowers, but stopped taking deposits from non-borrowers. So at least halfway compromise was done. In many countries around the world, even that is not allowed. So you cannot take deposits from your own borrowers, you cannot take deposits from outside. This has to be changed. I mean, if you're serious about uh, ending poverty, uh, you have to be serious about that. Those troubles could disappear right away if governments come and make a legislation to allow uh, creation of microcredit banks exactly the way microcredit works so that it's a now a, a banking entity, a formal entity which can take deposits and lend money so you don't have to look around for any money because the money is available right there. Uh, you can take deposits and lend it out to the local people. So this is, I think, the most important task of the government. Unless that is done, microcredit will always limp. It will cannot become a strong uh, business to reach out to all the poor people everywhere. So this is the most important role the uh, government can play, creating the environment for that. In order to facilitate the expansion of microcredit, in the absence of a regulatory body and in the absence of the legislation uh, to create microcredit bank, uh, one solution would be to create a wholesale fund, an intermediary body, who can borrow money, uh, take donor money, uh, pass it on to the microcredit uh, lenders, the NGOs, MFIs, uh, who can uh, do the job on the ground. So that entity is very important, that uh, intermediate entity which can provide the money because otherwise individual uh, microcredit program can spend 80-90% uh, of their time chasing uh, donors or somebody who can give the money. They can, unless you have the assurance of the money coming, you cannot plan your expansion, how many borrowers you want to reach out next month, next year because you are not sure where the money will come from. And also uh, that institution's wholesale fund can become a guarantee institution if microcredit uh, program is borrowing money from existing com commercial banks and other financial institutions, they can provide the guarantee so that even if the wholesale fund itself doesn't have enough money, they can uh, become the intermediary become between the financial institutions and the uh, microcredit programs. Pakistan has done that. Uh, India has done that, but not from the government side, from the private side, they have created a wholesale fund. Uh, Uganda, they have done that. In uh, Mexico, they have done a wholesale fund. So there are several countries that I see. But in many cases, the wholesale fund, since government sponsored it, is still is very uh, bureaucratic and rigid. In order for a wholesale fund to be effective, I think keeping a distance from the political entities like the government is very important. And people who want to invest in microcredit programs uh, as, a, as a social business entrepreneurs, 
uh, can use their money as a guarantee uh, for the existing uh, conventional banks to provide loans to the microcredit programs. So they can uh, individually or collectively create uh, some guarantee mechanism. Uh, Bangladesh is a very exceptional situation. Microcredit has uh, uh, gone a long way. Um, almost 80, 90 percent of the poor families have been reached out with microcredit programs in Bangladesh. Uh, but if you look at other countries like India or uh, China or Philippines, still a long way to go. So there these mechanisms and wholesale funds are extremely important and the uh, role of the government is very important in creating the environment, legal environment, to facilitate the creation of microcredit banks and regulatory body. United Nations organizations they have done some uh, organizational workshops, conferences, and that sort of thing. UN can uh, bring uh, success stories and share with other countries, tell people uh, how, why they feel that uh, microcredit is important, like celebration of inter International Year of Microcredit in 2005. But uh, I don't think we should expect them to uh, come and really uh, get involved in providing the funding they can do experimental funding, uh, they can do some documentational funding and that sort of thing. Not actual carrying on the microcredit program. That has to be done by somebody else. One important role I see uh, the international community, United Nations uh, can do is to collect all those information uh, and put it uh, on a monthly basis, on a weekly basis to the world. Uh, today, uh, the latest score is uh, country A is ahead of country B, and country C is lagging behind. So that, hey, why am I lagging behind? What are, what are we not doing? So you have a website, you can go to details and find out what is happening in our neighborhood. Providing that information is much more powerful than dishing out money. But nobody is providing us any information. I think this, this is the most uh, important thing to be done. Even in a rudimentary fashion, even if the information is not absolutely precise, so that is the most important thing to do. Unless we do that, unless we can measure, unless we can count, we cannot achieve. So that's as simple as that. Uh, the World Bank uh, as a financial institution uh, didn't go very far on supporting microcredit. If you look at their statistics, uh, World Bank lends out uh, $20 billion a year or something. Not even 1% of that money each year goes into microcredit. So you can see their priorities and importance they assign to them. And whatever money they have given in a big way in what you might call the mainstreaming in microcredit. Uh, one big example is their support to uh, Bangladesh in uh, wholesale fund. Bangladesh wholesale fund was working and uh, doing very good job and World Bank wanted to support that uh, institution. They provided uh, a big chunk of money, $150 million to begin with. Uh, so uh, that was one good point where money coming from the World Bank used very uh, appropriately and very uh, successfully. But my question is, if you could have this experience in Bangladesh, how good it worked, uh, why World Bank stopped at doing it elsewhere? They did it in Pakistan, but did it in a very different way than it's happened in Bangladesh. Uh, they have not um, in any other country that I know of.
one of the things uh, initiated by the World Bank uh, was the creation of CGAP, consultative group to assist the poorest. Uh, and we were behind it, supporting it um, to kind of a platform for all the donors uh, because I was thinking that uh, donors don't understand what uh, microcredit is. Uh, CGAP, uh, as it went on its work, uh, it concentrated on more on academic exercises, uh, studies, norms, rules, procedures, probably because they work with the donors, so they wanted to create some norms for the donors, but actual work uh, didn't, uh, was not helped very much by CGAP itself. Uh, one tension they created recently by changing their name, uh, which was a consultative group to assist the poorest. Uh, they thought uh, it would be wise for them to uh, change the name to consultative group to assist the poor rather than the poorest. So change from poorest to the poor. And their explanation is poorest don't need credit because they cannot handle credit. Uh, so we should be looking at the poor, the particularly upper part of the poor who can handle money. So I thought that was absolutely against the intention of the creation of CIGAP. And since the, uh, that time, I think they have lost uh, the touch of the ground level reality of microcredit completely. To achieve the 2015 goal, uh, first requirement, first thing that we must do, understand that uh, it's a global task. It's not the task of the government, it's not task of the uh, United Nations, it's not task of one particular group of donors or others. Everybody's involved. Institutions, individuals, in, uh, uh, organizations, businesses, everybody must feel that this is our task and take a pick up their own piece. How do we contribute and do that? We have to define the task itself. Unless we can describe this in a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis, we cannot proceed. Because if I don't know how much I have proceeded and how much path I have left, uh, how much distance to cover, uh, I'm not energized. It's not a money story. Donors cannot come and buy uh, Millennium Development Goals. Donors can only support governments and people's initiative to reach that. So this is a human uh, effort, it's, a, it's a more than the money effort. Uh, when you come to the village level, because that's where the re-election is, re-election is not at the United Nations, which is global. When you go at, a, at that level, everything gets blurred. You don't know what's happening, really. So the real person-to-person -person thing is at the village level or at the unit level in the city or a block level in the city, whatever level you have the primary level in, the, in all existence. And then see uh, how many poor people there are, you list them. Because poor people are not like an abstract entity, they are real people. And then we create an imaginary uh, roadmap. How from point this to next year at this point, next year, following year, following year, and then Finally, we made it. So each year's journey has been described. Then we divide it up in each month's journey, each week's journey, each day's journey. And then follow it up, what actually we're doing, and kind of plot it out so that we know we are making it or we're not making it. 
I have not seen uh, that any citizens group combined themselves. We are the citizens to achieve Millennium Development Goals. None. So if citizens don't feel this is important, government will not feel it's important. So that's where the citizens' roles are. If we can combine, we say we are for ensuring uh, the achievements of Millennium Development Goals. We want to do it. If we can make that kind of a spirit as a citizens, then it will become real. Then it's not just bureaucrats sending notes to each other. What have you done? Here is our report, glorious report. We are making all the efforts. You know, it's a country with lots of difficulties. You must understand our reality, ground reality. It doesn't really happen the way you think we should. Uh, but we are making all the efforts. We have spent so much money. We created this cell. We have done this. Uh, look at this beautiful uh, package that we have. That's it. It will be limited in that ping-pong games, old ping-pong that you write reports, I send reports and make a presentation, that's it. Not the real on-ground thing, unless people themselves become involved in that, to say, yes, we want. So this is what the citizens' role is. Citizens to form those kind of, uh, activate those institutions and form their own uh, lobby group, pressure group, and act action groups to make it happen. The world is changing. Not today. It has been changing ever since it was here. Uh, but the speed of change in human society is uh, getting faster and faster and faster. We come to the second half of the last century, 20th century, and we see suddenly the speed became uh, still faster. And we come to the last decade of the last century, we see that speed is um, phenomenal. Human society will be changing faster than ever before in the history of mankind. The question is, with those changes, where do we end up? 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. So this is a question everybody should be asking themselves because 50 years is a long, long time in the fast moving world. So this is the chance that we have to think ahead because unless we can imagine we cannot create. So I think it's a very concrete thing. All we have to do, believe in it and work for it. And it will happen. And it will happen faster than we can imagine. And that will be the day when we can all agree that we have to create museums, poverty museums. Because our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren would like to know about poverty because they're reading about in the history, but they don't see it around. So in order to uh, let them understand what poverty used to be like, so we have to create poverty museums. And when our children, our grandchildren will be visiting those poverty museums, they will hate us. They will hate their uh, predecessors because the earlier generations tolerated this inhuman conditions for fellow human beings. So that's a basic thing. We must imagine what it would be like in 2050 or 2030 or 2020 and then let us work together to make it happen and if we imagine things agree on that it will happen because we are the one who run this show so if we decide this is the kind of world we want it will be poverty free world there's no other escape we did something wrong and the poverty is created so let's do something right so that poverty disappears <laughs>
series, Ashoka hopes to inspire and spread awareness about social entrepreneurship and scalable solutions to global problems. The series is being used in the education arena, among businesses interested in corporate responsibility, by international development and civil society organizations, and by individuals seeking new careers and innovative ways to change the world. Ashoka would like to know what you think of this series. Please email your thoughts and ideas to ashokadvd at ashoka.org. Recognizing the power of individual innovation and social change, Bill Drayton founded Ashoka in 1981. Ashoka identifies and invests in extraordinary individuals with unprecedented ideas for change in their communities, supporting them, their ideas, and institutions through all phases of their careers. For more information or to get involved, visit www.ashoka.org. If you like this conversation, please share it with a friend. We've made it easy for you to spread important ideas for social and environmental change. Look for the new Share with a Friend feature on our website. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Stephen Eng. Our website editor was Kat McConnell. The series producer is Liz Evans. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll join us next time for another program from the Ashoka Social Entrepreneurship Series. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.